Uh, my name is Blake Chisholm. So I, I work for AWS uh, in professional services. I lead our state local education team for professional services and also our global practice development and global programs. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be with you guys here today. This is going to be a really interesting session. I think you're going to learn a lot. Um, you're very lucky to be here. <laughs> Not because of me, perhaps because of our other panelists here. Uh, first of all, just because you're here, who traveled more than five hours to get here? Okay, keep these hands up. Who traveled more than 10 hours? Okay, 20? Wow. Okay, I see. Anyone travel more than 24 hours to get here? One day. <laughs> you should be up front. Oh, two. Well, so, so first of all, you made it here. Second of all, you got a ticket to reinvent. So you're one of 31,450 people in this world that are here this week, which is astounding. Uh, anybody attend last year? Year before? Okay. Excellent. Yeah. It, this thing is growing like crazy. It, it's amazing to see we're adding hotels. I think next year we'll probably take on the, the, the whole city. So um, hopefully you are geared up for an amazing week. I think it's going to be incredible. Uh, you're going to see a lot of the new feature releases and the services that we have. Um, anybody here in the public sector? Okay, so congratulations to you because you did something that's astronomical. Uh, you actually got administration to approve a conference that says pub crawl in the public agenda <laughs> in Las Vegas, and you were able to make it here. So congratulations on that. Uh, I encourage you to make this an interactive session. If you want to take pictures, take pictures. If you want to tweet to AWS reInvent, do that. Um, it, it's going to be a, a great session. I'm going to start off and tell you a little bit about the AWS point of view on cloud governance. Uh, and then we have two guests who are customers of ours. Um, Allison Robinson, who is from the University of Maryland, is going to get up and talk with you. And Don Beadle, who's from Monash University down in Australia. Um, so you're going to get a, a little bit of everything here. I think you're going to really enjoy the session and uh, be able to get a lot out of it. Now, we actually do have a Q&A session um, scheduled for the end. Uh, there's some microphone. There's a microphone over here. Um, so if you have some questions, think about them. I can't guarantee you that we're going to get there because we may just have a lot of stuff that we need to cover. Um, we are going to hopefully have that opportunity for you to um, to ask those questions. If not, do not fear. We'll be over here at the end of the presentation. You can ask questions and um, be ready to go. You guys excited about this? Well, yeah, right. It's, it's governance, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's about what I expected, as excited as you can be. Um, so let's do something really quick to kind of set the stage. Just close your eyes or keep them open, however you want to do it. Uh, for those of you who came more than 24 hours, keep them open because they, uh, they may not open back up. Uh, so I want you to think about a deserted downtown area, okay? Trash cans everywhere, whirling winds, roving packs of marauders, uh, turning over cars, burning tires, trash everywhere, uh, systems administrators huddle over in the corner, and DBAs over here doing this stuff. Um, that is the opposite of what you want for your environment, right? That's what you get without governance, okay? Without governance, that's it. It's anarchy. Does anybody want anarchy in their environment? No, not cool, not fun. So what we're going to do today is talk about a definition of, of governance. So I think for a lot of people, it's one of those things that you know the word, you throw it around a lot, it's a checkbox, but you're not exactly sure how to do it. So we're going to talk about that. Now, when you implement governance in the cloud, one of the best practices and probably the most important best practice is to have a cloud center of excellence. So we're going to talk about what that cloud center of excellence looks like, give you some ideas on how to build that cloud center of excellence. Um, there's also some, some stages here. You know, as you're becoming a more mature cloud environment, and as you're developing, there's a couple of stages that you'll go through in terms of governance as well. So we'll talk about those. It'll probably be easy for you to pick yourselves out. You know, here's where my organization is, 
in these stages based on these things. So you'll be able to get that. Um, and then we'll look at a couple of the best practices. Right, so the best practices are, here's some things that you need to be doing um, in order to, to have really good cloud governance. Um, after that, Dawn will come up. She'll talk a little bit about what they're doing and um, some of the changes that they've made um, down in Australia, and then she'll hand off to Allison, who will, who will come up and tell us about Maryland, followed up by the possible question and answer period. So what is it that, that we're talking about? Like, why are we even talking about cloud governance? I mean, sh shouldn't we be talking about the ability to spin up servers or go serverless and have all sorts of really cheap, almost free storage and tons of uh, compute and auto scaling and things like that. I mean, that's really what we want to get to, right? That's the essence of why we want to go to the cloud. We want to see our cost go down. We want to see our um, availability go up. And we just need to know how do we do that in a safe and secure manner. Well, um, we'll, we'll go to academia for just a second here. So Peter Wheel and um, Jeanne Ross have this book, IT Governance. And in that book, they state that firms with above average IT governance had 20% higher profits than firms with poor governance. So if you're in the commercial sector, obviously 20% higher profits is great. If you're in the pub public sector, you don't necessarily look at the profit side of things, but you can make the correlation between that and other things. Um, so a couple of the things that we look for in the public sector space um, is really reduction in access and security risk. So through governance, you're able to, to take a look and say, all right, how are we going to mitigate the risk that we have for, for breaches, for security, um, and access? Regulatory compliance. How many, how many of you um, have to adhere to some sort of regulatory regime, com compliance regime? Yeah, just about everybody, right? Um, wouldn't it be easier to not have to think about that and not have to go through the manual process for that and be able to automate a lot of it. That's part of cloud governance. That's, that's one of the benefits there is being able to, to do that. Cost avoidance. So usually we talk about lowering costs. I think in, in a lot of your organizations, cost avoidance is gonna be a big piece of that. Cost reduction is obviously something that, that is important as well. And then once you're on the cloud or in the cloud, um, then you begin the process of optimization, which is kind of the, the, the cherry on top of the cake. I mean, that's the gravy on top of Thanksgiving dinner, right? Because not only do you get all of the benefits of the cloud, but now you can save money, too, by optimizing. Um, so that's something that, that setting up the right cloud governance in advance will help drive that. Elimination of rogue IT and disparate cloud initiatives. Anybody have shadow IT lurking? Yeah. All of you, half of you, right? Uh, so you have shadow IT, right, that, that, that's behind the scenes. I know um, I was talking to someone today in the university space. It's, it's rogue researchers that, that are kind of going out and doing these things, and, and central IT is calling AWS to come in and help them say, hey, let us set, the, set up this governance correctly so that we know exactly how this is going to work. We want to make sure that we're providing the proper level of services to end users, but that it's done in the appropriate way. Automation. See, automation is the best part about cloud governance because with automation, um, you don't have to go back and say, hey, did somebody forget to leave this port open or did someone unintentionally leave it open to the outside and now we're vulnerable? Um, you don't have to go through all of the, the manual processes that you might be going through now because with automation, you can set those things, um, you can templatize them, and when you push them out, you know that they are there and that they're, they're in effect. Um, you can then also monitor them after the fact and be able to say, okay, if we're having these issues, then we can go in and proactively take care of them. But it is on a manual step-by-step -step process. So automation really helps drive a lot of the efficiencies that we're talking about. Innovation. So innovation is something that isn't always considered when people talk about moving to the cloud, right? So you think about getting rid of legacy debt comes to mind, uh, moving out of data centers, maybe moving to a more agile platform, uh, possibly high availability. So a lot of the things that are more platform-based and cost-based then um, go into the equation. 
But then what you begin to see is now we have resources that are left over at the end. Now we've been able to create this space where we can invest in innovation for the organization. We can try new things. We can try things faster. Um, how many of you have a, a provisioning time on a requested server of two months or more, eight weeks or more to get a server provisioned? Yeah, it's okay. You don't have to be shameful. It, it happens. Um, right, that, that's kind of the reality that we're in today. Uh, it, it could take weeks to get a server provision. So any attempt at innovation is shot because so much goes into the red tape of preventing these things from happening that you're not able to take advantage of it. So I think that, that innovation is an important part of it. Now that we have removed a lot of those barriers, we're automating um, the governance process to a large degree, then um, there is the increased capacity for innovation within the organization. And then the, the management of the consumption of cloud services. This is probably the one area that we hear about the most is, this is gonna be the wild, wild west, right? This is anybody with a P card is gonna go swipe that P card and they're gonna go spin up servers and they're gonna go put a bunch of stuff in storage and Redshift is super cool. And even though it's really cheap to do all this stuff, our bill is just gonna keep going up because we don't know how to control it. So putting the, the proper governance in place is a way to say, okay, now we're gonna take the resources that we do have and the way that we utilize those resources and we're gonna be able to manage those in a way that, that makes sense for all of this. Okay, so that's kind of what we're looking at doing. I think we're gonna take a step back here and we're gonna say, okay, what, what is cloud governance, right? It's a word that is thrown around quite a bit. It's a word that a lot of people feel that they have to talk about or have to have something to, to replace. Um, I'll offer you a definition. It is not the definition. Uh, the decision-making people, criteria, processes, and policies involved in the planning, architecture, acquisition, deployment, operation, and management used for operating IT services in the cloud. Did I get enough words in there? Yeah, that about covers it, okay? Now, that's kind of wordy, but I think it, it, it's a good definition of what we're looking for. Um, if you look at the bottom, I, you remember ninth grade, uh, English literature, every paper started with Webster's Dictionary defines governance as, here you go, the action or manner of governing, the way a company is controlled by the people who run it. So I think if we're going to kind of come to a common uh, understanding of what governance is, the best correlation there is governance coming from government. So a government exists for a particular reason and the Governance is the way that that is put into place. Anybody here a big fan of office space? Right, so you know the scene, right? The Bobs are sitting down there and he looks across the table at the guy and he says, what would you say you do here, right? So what is it that a government does? Number one, a government makes laws. Everybody in agreement there? Number two, they administrate those laws, adjudicate the laws, and then allocate shared assets for shared goals. So these four things are basically what a government does for the people whom it represents. Now, if we take kind of this model here, I think we can build out a pretty, pretty good framework for what governance does. Um, Basically, why do you have to have a government? Well, to make good decisions as a society for the society. So the anarchy that I described a little bit earlier, um, if there was no government doing governance, you would be in anarchy, okay? Um, so now, what exactly does it do? Well, we talked about making laws. We talked about administrating those laws, adjudicating those laws, and then allocating shared assets or shared goals. Now, how it governs, okay? We basically boil this down into two different areas. Uh, first one is scope. So for a lot of people, uh, cloud governance, the scope is going to be everything that is included in IT today, right? That's, that's pretty much it, the entire organization. 
Now, if you start looking at something uh, like a federal government that may have individual departments, I think you can kind of change the governance scope on that. Um, and then, then the ideology. The ideology is really how it's governed. Um, you know, specifically, is it very centralized? Is it decentralized? What type of risk tolerance do you have when it comes to, to the, the ideology for governance? And then finally, um, how the government is delivered. So this is basically broken down into two things. Your structures, and the structures have to do with the people who actually do the governing. Um, you, you know, how, who are the people? Um, what rights and roles do they have? What responsibilities do they have? And then the processes on the other side. Um, what are the accepted processes um, you know, that they undergo in order to carry out on adjudicating and administrating these laws? So if you look at this and you think of this as a government and a process of understanding governance, I think you can quickly flip the switch and say, okay, how does this look, how does this translate into IT or IT cloud governance, right? So just by changing a couple of words, why IT governance still enjoying the benefits of good decisions for the organization? We want to make sure that there's safety and security, um, that we're using the resources adequately and appropriately. But then um, we look at it and we go, okay, they're not necessarily laws, but maybe policies and standards is a better way to look at it. So from an organizational standpoint, we have policies that we put into place. Um, those policies can cover people, they can cover technology. Um, we make them, we administrate them, we adjudicate them. And then from a cloud perspective, it's really how do you manage those resources that you have in the cloud? Scope and ideology pretty much are gonna be the same. So what exactly is going to be the scope of your cloud governance? Um, that's something that only you can set depending on the organization. Um, and then the, the ideology is really that philosophy for how you're going to govern. Um, are you gonna say, hey, as long as you stick within these parameters, everybody feel free to do what they want to do? Or do you want to make it a highly centralized uh, type of governance model that says, well, really, you come to us and we'll provide you with the, the resources, the services, et cetera, that you need, um, and then we'll monitor everything um, that way. And then finally, the structures, right? Who's going to be um, making these decisions? What rights and privileges do they have? What access do they have um, to make these types of things? And then the processes by which you um, implement um, a lot of the policies um, and standards that you have there. Okay, so what are some opportunities? The opportunities of cloud governance. Number one is speed. I just talked about the ability to, to provision a server in a matter of minutes as opposed to days, weeks, months. Um, now you can do a whole lot of things really quickly. So a great example of this is if you're able to templatize an environment, and let's say you have a, a workload that needs a particular pattern, a particular environment, you can template that out using CloudFormation. You can attach all of the different resources that you need and, um, and lock it down and harden it. So an individual or a business unit can come in and request that that it be provided to them in that hardened environment so you don't have to worry about those things, that's speed, right? Because the decisions were made in advance. It's also scale. So now instead of one-offs for everything that needs to be approved, people can actually go in and get self-service um, using service catalog or some of the other things like that and begin to provision those resources at a speed because you're secure in the governance that you've put in place. Integration. Um, integration is it has to work with your current environment. I would love for everybody in this room to be all in 100% on AWS in the next six months. In fact, I would love that so much that is my actual job is to help customers move 100% all into AWS. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen immediately. I think it will happen eventually. Um, so the integration piece has to be there, right? How do we make sure that we're able to integrate um, the cloud governance, the cloud resources, et cetera, with what's going on uh, on-premise? And, and balance is the other thing, too. So with a lot of power from the cloud that you have, 
you also have to balance that with the, the investments that you have and the risk that you have. Um, proactivity. So this one talks specifically about um, making sure that as an organization you're removing the risk associated with shadow IT, that you're looking around the, the corner and you're saying, okay, what are some of the things that might be coming up because of this? We want to be out in front of that and proactively govern our cloud environment to make sure that those things don't happen. I think proactivity is really important here. Um, it's worth thinking a lot about because it's one of those things once you get too far down the road, it's hard to pull back on some of these things, particularly if you have a business unit that is showing um, a tremendous amount of progress, generating a lot of revenue, providing better service to constituents. If they're doing that, even though they're doing it in an unsecure manner, or even though they may not be doing it in a, a manner that correlates with the governance model you have in place, it's very difficult to pull that back. So the best thing is to make sure that, that you're able to, to kind of hit those things in advance. So make sure that the governance is there. And then enablement. Um, enablement really just is kind of removing the friction from the decisions. Um, this is something that I see as an opportunity. The, the, the move to the cloud is really an opportunity to whitewash, right? And to say, okay, we're gonna start over with this. Um, you know, we've been going down a certain path. Now everything that we do that's new is going to be done in the appropriate manner. It's gonna be secure, it's gonna have policies behind it, it's gonna be monitored correctly. We're gonna review and make sure that everything is up to date. So now everything new can be done correctly as opposed to having to go back and kind of unwind and unwrap all of the other policies that have been in place. So how is it that you get this to happen? I think the most important thing that you can do for cloud adoption is not to sign a contract or get an account with AWS, although that's great, it's having a good cloud center of excellence. Cloud center of excellence is another really long definition. So take pictures, because I'm not gonna read it. Um, but essentially, the cloud center of excellence is going to be your core, your core cloud team, and some people have a C2T instead of a CCOE, um, a core competency center, a C3 is the other one. Um, what this group ends up doing um, is, is a number of different things. There are gonna be models that you see that look like this, which is basically a, uh, a cloud representation of an existing uh, organizational model, organizational structure, right? Uh, where you have kind of the, the, the chief cloud officer and the CTO and you've got a PMO in there and you have developers and all these other people. I submit to you, do whatever structure works for you, but the makeup of that structure is important. This group needs to be the quintessential coalition of the willing, okay? This doesn't need to be, hey, we've got to have a DBA, so let's go grab Jane because she's got a little extra time and put her on this team because we need her perspective. Or Bob over here on uh, security, you know, he's, he's pretty good, he knows what he's doing, let's get him on the team. At least at the beginning, you want the craziest people you can find who are just so uh, head over heels in love with the cloud that, that they're the ones that are just rushing the, the stage to get on this cloud team. Now, the reason is that with that type of enthusiasm and that type of drive, I don't care if they're all DBAs, right? Preferably a little mix is gonna be better. But with that type of enthusiasm, now all of a sudden you've got this group of people who is doing things and they're, they're making policies, they're thinking about it, they're researching. They're looking at a different way of doing business. They're not trying to find out why they should keep doing business the same way that they have been. So I say whatever works well, do it, but find the craziest people you can. The other thing you can do is make that a um, sort of an elite group, make people wanna be a part of it, but in doing that, you can also rotate people in and out. So by rotating, one of the benefits that you get is you're able to make it an, an exclusive group to a certain degree. Obviously, you don't want it perceived as an ivory, ivory tower, but what you do want is people to want to be part of that group 
and then you can circle them in and out or cycle them in and out. And when they leave, they then go back to their teams with all of this cloud knowledge and they become your evangelist moving it forward. So the Cloud Center of Excellence is a really important piece to this. If you do a search online for Cloud Center of Excellence, there are dozens of really good models of what it looks like. I think the key ingredient is just the, the makeup of the, the people and the enthusiasm that they have. Okay, in the back, don't even try. I didn't realize how small the words were gonna be. <laughs> so just know that these slides will all be available for you online. Um, you can pull them down, you can look at them. Um, this is a, a, a pretty basic model. Um, I won't go through it, but essentially what you're looking at is from left to right, degree of automation and approved self-service. So as you move in that direction, you wanna become more automated and you want to allow for more self-service, right? Very low touch from the centralized governance authority. And then as you move from um, bottom to top, you're looking at um, having more enterprise governance um, and, and less control um, over kind of individuals and having that more of those decisions made in a centralized manner. So we kind of have decentralized control moving up to centralized control with self-service. Obviously, the, the farther up and to the right you can go, the better. Phases of, of cloud governance. Um, so beginning, adopting, and mature. I think that's probably as good a model as, as anybody could come up with. Uh, you know, at the beginning, minimal integration, very reactive environment. Uh, your cost overruns are going to exist there. Um, manual deployments for everything, one-off builds, uh, really no cloud structure in place. As you begin to get better at it, you know, this whole cloud adoption transformation thing is a process. Um, you now have a cloud center of excellence in place. You have policies that are matched. Um, you're designing for cost. So now you can predictively decide what you want to pay for each service based on the requirements of the business and uh, the availability and other things like that. And then also rapid deployment, right? You're getting things out faster. You're testing things. You're adding features. You're doing all of those things at a fast pace. Um, if you look at AWS as an example, you know, I think last year we we released 750 some odd features and services. This year we blew past that number a couple weeks ago, right? And, and think about the scale of that. So being able to move towards a better governance model helps you with that rapid pace of deployment. Then when you're mature, you're fully automated. Individuals have self-service access to be able to, to um, you know, use the services that they have. You have agility, control, cost optimization, et cetera. So I won't go through um, each of these individually, but obviously at the start, create your Cloud Center of Excellence. Um, develop your governance model. Uh, begin modifying the deployment process, right? So you're beginning to create these policies as you go through. Um, number two is kind of that adopting phase. Um, this is where you're saying, okay, now that we're moving into the cloud, we're learning as we go, maybe even redoing some of the governance model that was in place before. You're maturing it, you're building it out, you have data governance policies, um, CICD, you're designing for cost, et cetera. And then ultimately, when you get to mature, this is where um, you really hit your stride because automation is there, self-service is there, um, your compliance regimes are, um, are all checked off and you've got the, the policies and um, services that are, that are in place for you. So to wrap up my portion, um, a couple of best practices. Establish the CCOE, tailor your governance processes to your organization's particular risk. I think that's really important that you work within uh, the organizational structure um, and what you have going on. You wanna make sure that this is a benefit to the business, to the organization that you're working in. Um, deciding which of the existing governance processes you can leverage. You don't have to reinvent the wheel for a lot of this stuff. Um, make the processes as lightweight as possible, as informative as possible. Don't make them a burden, but show why these processes um, and standards should be in place and how they benefit uh, the, the organization as a whole. Um, start early in the cloud transformation process, right? So we talk about cloud transformation as a 
you know, six to 18 month process of changing the organization to be able to adopt cloud services. Um, the whole time you're, you're migrating workloads, you're doing proofs of concept. Um, start this really early on um, because I think the better foundation you have, the better long-term transformation you'll have. Um, and then go back and look at ways that you can improve your processes. So those are some of the best practices. I'm gonna ask Dawn Beadle to come up and uh, she is from Monash University um, and has some really interesting perspective on the things that they've done down there. Upside down. Good afternoon. I'm gonna talk about um, what we've been doing at Monash. Um, we're a university based in Melbourne, Australia. Um, just to um, give you some of the size and scale of uh, Monash, um, we are global, except for North America. Um, we have uh, 70,000 students, give or take, and we are growing um, aggressively. Um, we have around 15,000 staff. Um, we're in the top 1% globally and um, the top eight um, I think actually two or three or four, depending on which um, rank you look at within Australia. Um, to give you an idea of the IT at Monash, um, we have 500 plus uh, FTE, we, which is uh, the full-time equivalent. Um, we have around um, 1,000 actual staff working for us in one way or another. Um, we found that out when we did a, um, a transition to workplace recently, and there are 1,000-plus accounts for contractors, installation engineers, and the FTE. So that 500-plus is our employees. Um, we had, if I'd written this slide six months ago, we would have had 3,500 VMs. Um, I wrote this two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, we had 3,000. Um, we're now down to probably about 2,800, and you'll hear why on another slide. Um, in the last six months, we have also rationalized from about six storage environments down to two, uh, NetApp and HDS. We're standardized on Cisco. Um, we use quite a lot of SaaS services, so we're a Google shop. We have Office 365, Concur, all those other um, SaaS services. So we were an early adopter on a lot of those. Um, we have two data centers, one of which is outsourced, one is on campus. And given the growth, um, there is a big push to get us out of the data center that's on campus. It's a very, very old building, and um, needless to say, there's no pictures of it in this pack. Um, and we are getting out of the second data center. Um, we use um, a provision, uh, a network provider called Arnet, which is the, the Australian university um, provider. I joined Monash um, for the second time three years ago um, to run a program called Beyond 2015. Um, and we're now beyond 2015, so um, there's a lot happened. Um, the vision of the then CIO was to actually provide a much more flexible environment. Um, we were seen as a blocker and a bit of a black hole for uh, most things back then. Um, and we did take not just two months, but we could take six months to provision a server, um, which was um, uh, holding the university back. University's got a, a massive change agenda, and we actually needed to, to move to keep up with that. We approached um, the journey to the cloud with a with that approach. It was for agility, flexibility, to actually support the university in its innovation and uh, the agility they needed to transform. Um, it was not as a cost-driven um, exercise. Um, the other thing we wanted to do was actually get out of the, the old model that we were using for procurement of services and actually start making use of uh, cloud services which had actually got to the maturity for enterprise environments then. So that started back in 2014, um, in January 2014, so it's actually quite easy to measure where we're at. Our change agenda um, has, has moved on since then. 
So uh, middle of last year, um, we got a new CIO um, and uh, a much more aggressive approach to how we actually move. Um, so we are trying to get out of the data center. So in June this year, um, uh, our CIO tweeted that uh, we were going to be out of the data center by the end of the year. Um, previous to that, in April, he had tweeted that we were now cloud only. Up until that point, we'd been cloud first. So every step of the way this year, we have got more and more aggressive in our uh, move out of the data center into the cloud and everything that that entails. So it's a good job we started nearly three years ago. Uh, by the way, that's not our data center. That looks like our new data center, which is another outsourced one. Um, that's not our current data center by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the cloud-only piece, um, on that, um, we immediately put in a, um, a ban on any new internal VMs being built. They, were, they are now only built um, with express uh, authorization from my boss, the CIO, and everything comes through me. So unless I know he's going to authorize it, I don't even put them up anymore. And actually, that's starting to flow down the organization. And that's one of those bits of governance that actually starts to make things happen. So I think in the last four months, we've had about six um, that I've taken forward and said, we definitely need a VM for this on site in the data center. Because everything we build now, we're going to have to move by the end of the year. Um, a quick slide on governance, and I won't talk to this one for too long um, because Blake's just talked to governance quite, uh, quite a bit. Uh, one thing on there that I want to stress we don't quite follow is uh, the consensus orientated. We spent a lot of time in 2014 in an organizational change program uh, communicating, involving lots of staff around uh, e-solutions, which is what our IT is called. Um, to actually start them on the change journey for their job is changing, the way we work is changing. Um, if we'd have carried on with a consensus-based approach, we would still be in meetings talking about how we're going to do things. So there is a point at which you have to say, no, we are doing it this way, and then enforce it. Um, other than that, um, governance, we're um, aiming at transparency, making people accountable, all those nice things that um, Blake talked about. You're not meant to read this one, by the way. <laughs> um, but we took an approach way back in 2014 that said, we're not just going to move workloads to the cloud in an ad hoc basis. We actually want to build a virtual data center. All of our enterprise workloads will end up here or in a software as a service or a platform as a service. If it can't go software or platform as a service, then it is going into our virtual data center. And not only is this a virtual data center, we will next year start building equivalent virtual data centers in other clouds because we appreciate that there are benefits from both, both three of the clouds that we're going to. Um, so we approached it not as an ad hoc, let's move a workload to AWS. We said, okay, what does a data center look like in the cloud? How can we secure it? What controls can we build in? Um, you'll see on there we have an ingress, egress VPC. We've got a shared services VPC that's got all the monitoring and management tools in. We've got um, what I call the empty racks in the middle, um, and we can actually put it in shared VPC for shared applications or individual application VPCs. Um, We've got direct connecting um, and the controls around that. Um, and we've, we monitor that. Um, it's at one gig right now. And looks we can step that up to five gig and then to 10 gig as we go. Um, and we've set up um, the security and the networking the right way from the beginning. Um, that's one of the things. So all of the governance we needed in a data center is driven at this level. One of the big pushes we had from the beginning um, is we will automate 
this and we will use tools to actually drive a lot of that automation and standardized tools as well. So from an automation point of view, one of the key things we put in place, um, and again, we did a lot of consultation on the, in the early days on this, um, is a concept of templates, patterns, and blueprints. Templates is, is the, the bottom of the stack, basically. That's how we do a uh, Windows or a Linux image. On top of that, we then put um, things that make it a web server. The necessary connections, the necessary uh, controls for the classification of data, um, the necessary availability and reliability, all the things that are required to set up a web server, for example. And there's one for an application server and one for a database server and all that. Um, it has the controls necessary at that level built into the automation. Then we put those patterns together as a blueprint. So if you want a web stack, it will almost certainly have three patterns in it. Um, and it will then have the necessary networking between those um, patterns. It will have the necessary security, it will have the necessary ports and all those other things open as a blueprint. Um, there are variations, so you know, it can be big or small, different sizes and all the rest of it, but essentially the construct of that blueprint is the same. Um, and then people can use them to build their solutions. Um, so we did a lot of work around what does that look like, how do we control that, um, what goes into it. Um, all of that is done via code and automation. Um, and we're now at the point for some of the really simple ones of these, we're now at the point of being able to actually request those and then be fired up. One of the other things we've built into the patterns is which environment it actually runs for. So if this is a dev pattern, um, it automatically uh, will start at 8 a.m. in the morning and switch off at 6 p.m. Um, that's to ensure that we have some control around our costs um, in there from the start. Um, and as I said, we didn't do this as a cost exercise, and that's probably the last piece of the governance that we're now getting to. Um, and from a tools perspective, one of the other things I, I, I need to mention um, we went in with a um, probably a, a blue sky um, idea that we would use um, tools that actually work across all cloud environments. Um, as we went through um, the process over the last two years, um, we've come back from that idea. And that's one of the things we're learning as we go all of the time. And we're actually using separate tools for separate cloud environments now because um, we found there were no tools that actually would allow us to work across three cloud environments um, and that it actually speeds things up significantly if we use some of the native tools. Yes, there's an overhead because people need to learn more tools, but they're native and therefore they are quicker and easier to actually deliver with. So we're still uh, working on where that boundary is between common tools and native tools. Um, and we'll continue to review that every six months or so because um, tools are, are moving really quickly right now. Another part of the governance that plays a, a strong um, role within Monash is access control. Um, we have federated um, access to our AD uh, and use policies in AD. Um, this is one area that we have been really strict about um, and is so different to our internal environment. Um, we do not allow, um, other than probably, I think it's about five engineers, um, access to the console to do things. Many people have access to read-only and to, to view and run reports and things like that, but only a few have access to do things. Everything else is done by code. Um, it's very different to our current environment where DBAs can have access to tweak the OS. We have application teams that load lots of different things into um, their environments um, and also change the OS and, and, and take things out and don't keep them up to date. Um, one of the things um, we've had to do is limit that because otherwise we would have the same problem in our cloud environment that we do in our internal environment. Um, 
This is one of the big changes that people are uh, struggling to come to grips with. Um, it's, it supports everything that we're doing. It's one of the areas that we're actually uh, holding very strong on. The biggest part of this has not been the technology. It's been the people change that we have had to um, start doing. Um, we've had to change the way a lot of people work. We've had to change the way a lot of people think. Um, and we are uh, nearly three years into that. And I say we've probably got about 50% of the infrastructure people with us. So I run uh, the hosting guys, networks, security and risk, um, identity and authentication, and desktop engineering. So in that environment, I've probably got about 50% of the people are right there, right with us. Um, interestingly, a number of those with those, um, those strange people that volunteered right at the beginning, and, and I did get a few of the crazy ones, um, and they're now actually um, some of the leaders that we've got. Um, so we, we've got about 50% of them. This has been one of the main things we've been doing over the, the, the past two and a half years. Um, we got a new CIO back in uh, May, June last year, um, and he has driven this agenda from the top down. Um, and he has said, we are going this way, um, get on with it. And, and that's been at every level of the organization. So it has to be top down. We've also implemented a new um, program to help managers manage their people, which is, is one of those things that we don't do well in IT. So this is about how do you get a, a technical person who has come up through their profession um, and he's now a manager of people. Um, so we're using a, an American uh, uh, framework called Manager Tools, um, and we're using um, that across the whole of eSolutions. Um, it supports that top-down, increased communications, and a chain of command. So getting people to understand that um, they are there to do a job that actually is what the university wants them to do, not what they choose to do. The fact that they should take instructions from their manager. Um, the fact that we should be actually communicating at all levels what it is we're trying to achieve and why we're trying to achieve that. So we now have a massively increased communications um, from stand-ups um, from the highest level. So we, at exec level, we have an 8 o'clock stand-up. Most of the rest of the teams then have an 8.30 stand-up, and then that flows down. We also have things like one-to-ones for every single staff member from their manager every single week, and we measure that. Um, and again, this is about us actually communicating much better. They're just half an hour, and people get the messages face-to-face -face from their manager that this is the direction we're going in, and this is why. Um, it actually makes our life in that cloud transformation much, much easier. Um, and over time, the last six months particularly, it has got easier, and the shift and the balance has moved. Um, and I'm hoping I can stand up in even a few months' time and say we're now at probably 60% or 75% of our workforce are with us um, going in the right direction. Um, I thought I'd quickly touch on uh, some of the lessons. And I've talked about all of the the governance that we've put in place and the things that we need to do. Um, but I will also say you need to do something, not nothing. And we cannot have a slavish approach to that compliance if you want to actually get momentum and you want to start the transformation. So even though we had all of that in place, um, our first three workloads that were built in the cloud for the cloud did not comply with everything I've just told you or else we would never have got it built. So we actually um, made exceptions in the early days and actually said, right, okay, build it like that, and we'll help you manually build it. And then we learned how to automate it. Um, and one of the biggest workloads that we built um, in AWS and that's in production right now um, is on its seventh iteration, um, and it will be, after this iteration, fully automated. 
And every step of the way, they have automated a bit more and a bit more. Um, but they went in with only a very little automation and lots of manual steps. If we hadn't have let them do that, we would never have a production workload in the cloud right now. Um, the other thing on, on the do something, not nothing, we have a legacy environment that we're getting out of the data center. Um, and that's probably 30, 40 years of um, very specific apps that nobody knows nothing about. Um, we're migrating those, and I'm going to be going to a lot of the talks on how to mass migrate. Um, we've migrated about 27 to date. Um, the target was hundreds. Um, but every step of that way, we've also had issues. So first off, we've actually now segregated. Any legacy environment doesn't go into that nice, new, clean VPC with all those controls in. It actually goes into a segregated, quarantined VPC until next year when we actually decide what to do with them. Because our aim is to get them out of the data center, not to transform them or do anything else. Next year, we will then decide what to do with them. We can do that because we're not cost-driven. We're monitoring costs, but we're not cost-driven. On the other side of it, uh, executive sponsorship. Um, we had a new CIO. You saw <laughs> he tweets the direction we're going in. Everyone sees it, and, and it starts to get us on board. Um, he's driving this from the top down, um, and I feel that every day. Um, and last one, it's not all about the technology. This is a big people change agenda. We're changing the way people work, and we have to change the way people think. And with that, um, I will hand over to Alison. Good afternoon. So just some quick stats on the University of Maryland. When you put faculty, staff, and students together, we are a little over 50,000 people on campus. We're a very high research institution. Last year's numbers were a little over half a billion in research dollars. And then to just give you a sense of the footprint of technology on campus, we have four data centers, 225 buildings, some stats around the network, which are pretty indicative of, of the scope of which we, what we deal with. And I'm here today specifically for the four data centers. Um, our best data center of the four is a leased facility. So um, we have something to deal with in terms of uh, uh, our data centers and improving them. And University of Maryland is inside the DC Beltway. We're eight miles from the capital. So the capital that it would take, dollar capital it would take to raise the money to be able to build a data center just is not realistic. And so we had started initially with a web environment. Um, it, was, it seemed to be the safest and the, something that most people were comfortable with to put the web on the web. I thought it had a certain amount of logic to it. And we, we put it there, but it didn't go forward very far after that. Two years ago in July, we had a new CIO start. And he was pro-AWS and, and very much about what, what can we do with it. Then when we started talking about the complications we have with current data centers, he was very, very pro-AWS. And we began the focus of looking at how we can move from on-prem to AWS to be able to um, meet our needs of, of the data center. He was also very interested in making sure that we were a service-based organization. He had five questions that he would ask. The first one is, who do we serve and what are they trying to accomplish, which is the most strategic question of the five. The fifth one is all around and how are we organized to deliver those services. So really, our AWS travel um, path really started with our people. We wanted to be more agile, we wanted to be service focused, and we certainly wanted to automate. So with that, we, um, we, I, was, I was charged to go to AWS two years ago and uh, reinvent and learn about it. And I went to Blake's session at that um, conference and he was talking about the transformation of Blueprint. You're, you're here on-prem, you want to get to AWS, what do you do to get there? And, and it was around the technical, but it was also around the governance. And it really stuck with me because what resonated with me as he spoke was some of the things that he was talking about two years ago and again today. I could look back at our current on-premise and I could say, you know, we, we, we didn't really, we should have changed that long ago. Or 
ooh, we didn't really keep that up to date, or we never really even thought about that. So as we were going to AWS, my, my, my staff that does the technical, they're great. They're going to they're gonna learn it. They're going to get it. They're going to do great things. My concern was all the things around that and those not getting accomplished. So just a quick overview of what we, we, um, we had to work with our people first because we were structured in a way that was not going to facilitate how we needed to work at Amazon as a service organization with automation. And of course, that, just like Dawn had said, that's a big component of changing culture. We had a lot of people who had built and then run a service, and it was their service, and they had pride in it. But sometimes it gets a little dysfunctional. And Dawn had described it earlier when we were talking, treating um, servers and services like pets rather than cattle. It was hard for people to let go of some of these things. So there's a culture aspect to it, too. And then our first town hall, every quarter we come together as an organization and we um, share what the priorities are for the quarter. And um, in there, the CIO had said, this will take people learning new things. And if you're willing to learn, we're willing to retrain. And so that kind of earmarked where we started the process of reorganizing to be able to get our, ourselves in AWS effectively. So... Early fall, this is what our organization looked like. We had six different areas. Each area was responsible for their own planning, their own building, their own running. What we found our campus customers had to do was if you knew the person in security and the one guy in infrastructure and, the, and, and, and Eric over in networking, then you could put those things, those people together and you could build your service. And, and I equate it to what if you had to call a TV internet phone provider and know who to call in the company to put that together for your house. So we needed to, we needed to break down these silos. We had everybody in the organization. I gave them a template. I asked them to task out everything they do, time they spent on task, and tell me, do you consider it a planning task, a building task, or a running task? And um, we did that for the whole organization, 250-ish FTE. And so when we got done and put that data together, we knew essentially where time on task was in each one of these areas. That helped us, I wish it were this quick, just click a button and there's the new organization. Yeah, there was a little more work than that. Essentially, this is very ITIL-centric. We have a plan group. We found when we did our time on task, we had very, very few resources here in plan. Most all of it was dedicated to the business office and communications. Then we identified a, a, a build group, an engineering group. They focus on building the product, documenting it, automating it, and then they turn it over to operations who runs it. Operations is actually the gatekeeper on telling them whether or not it's ready to, be, to move in and started building that DevOps environment. So I, I want to use some examples um, to what Blake talked about because what, what I did when, when we st I started learning more about this, I sat down with the CIO and I said, remember when you sent me to reInvent? There, there was this guy and he was talking about, you're here, you want to get there, how do you want to do it? And, and AWS can actually help us with this. And we, we really did need to move e efficiently through this process. And so we actually contracted with AWS Professional Services in the um, uh, blueprint transformation, transformation blueprint. And so they came in and some of the very areas that, that Blake talked about are very much the scope and the statement of work. That you sit down and you talk about people, you talk about the roadmap, you talk about security, you talk about operations. And you, you figure all those things out and, and, and put that together and they help pull in different resources. So for example, the effective and secure management. One of the pieces of automation is we use ServiceNow as our, our, we do ideation, project management, and then the service catalog and our services and incident are, are done there. It's our, it's our tool for that, that process. We um, use Lambda to actually uh, allow for people to go to service catalog. This is gonna be released in a couple days, for example. Full stack Drupal, if you want a Drupal site, you can go to the service catalog, click a button, and it's provisioned and it's available that quick. So they really helped us with some of the resources and partnering with ServiceNow to figure these things out. Our sourcing and host, hosting matrix, the um, interesting thing there to, to the point of taking six months, and it was exactly six months, our director of research had a grant um, in data science, uh, geolocation, as we, ArcGIS is, is really big and, and, and really needed. 
And um, we had a grant that had, had need for this. And he had estimated that if we had done that on-site, as had typically been done in the past, between servers, storage, load balancers, setup, application, six months, quarter of a million dollars. Um, when we did our engagement with AWS, they take different applications and help you get them here to the cloud. We had done some already. They had sanctioned what we did. So we said, help us tackle a hard one. So they helped us tackle an AMI for ArcGIS. Instead of a quarter of a million dollars in six months, it's now a click of a button. So it's, it's really, really impressive um, what we're able to do and, and how, how uh, the staff is able to figure this out. One other thing I really wanted to point out that I thought it was benefit in this engagement, and we're just wrapping it up. This is not for reading as well. And believe me, it's a lot more extensive than this. The first time I saw it, it was almost overwhelming. But it's, it names the role, the activity, and then the role in the organization. So there's mine, Deputy CIO. There's nothing. Isn't it great? Yeah, it didn't stay like that. It didn't stay like that. So. People sat down at the table and they started going through this. This task needs to be done. Who's responsible for it? Who's accountable? And it really, what I saw it do is it brought people together because there were some assumptions that you would do it or you wouldn't do it. And it started, um, it can create hard feelings or it can leave gaps. So this exercise of sitting down and really spelling out who's responsible for what in the new environment, I found it to be a really great way to drive the uh, initiative forward. Costing is another thing that we um, spent a fair amount of time on with in this activity. And, and so we needed to capture our current costs. Now this, again, it's not a for-profit organization, but what you do is you show value. When, when, when the money is spent on organization in, in a university, you're competing with almost everyone else for those same dollars. So you really want to be able to show how much the service costs, who benefits, and make sure that they understand the value of what you're providing. So we found it important that we be able to model our costs. And here's another situation where we um, have all of our billing information being dumped into an S3 bucket. And Splunk, we have a connector for Splunk and a dashboard. And all of our billing comes out from that instance into a dashboard. It's, it's really, really slick. So I'm going to share with you two different models, how our architecture um, and, and costing played into it. And actually, governance plays into this as well. So our research architecture, you see the object storage in the middle there, and we see um, AWS experimental partition and AWS research partition. That's compute. And there's any variety of resources in the middle that you can use, including AWS, or maybe it's local. Maybe it's a researcher who has been out in the field and comes back with data, and they need to use AWS to help chunk through that data, but it comes back local. We're allowing to scale and move things back and forth. Research architecture. Providing technology for researchers is always about giving the technology they need to be successful. And it looks very, very different for each researcher. So it's much more personalized. This is a hybrid environment. It will always be a hybrid environment. It's pretty dynamic. Our business intelligence, we're all in at the cloud. And we're, we're completely building from there. So I, I wanted to be sure. I even wrote them down because I love learning from other people's pain and not, not suffer, experiencing it myself. Don't forklift. If there's anything that we just said, it's a mess on, on campus. We, we just need to rethink this. We need to put some, it was, it was business intelligence, and we're, we're rebuilding it at AWS. Stay within those parameters of how they work. It's, it's really important. Um, don't forget the network. Don had men, mentioned Direct Connects. We have multiple ISPs, and we have direct, redundant Direct Connect. You thought the network was important before. You know, put this in the cloud, and it's just uber important. So that that's you need to have that there. Training early. I sat down with some of the center of excellence guys, and I said, "Okay, guys, this is your chance. What did I get wrong?" And so they pulled out their list. And um, one of the things they said though is train early. And so part of our reorg was a whole new way we do our, our progress reports. We set those priorities and say, what are you going to accomplish? And we have training that's identified. And, and so start the training early. There's free resources at Amazon Web Services. If you have access to lynda.com, there's some great stuff there. Have people get used to that. So contextually, they come in a little more prepared for what you're going you're gonna to say. Um, security at the table, key partner, they're there day one. Don't think a few things through and then add them in. Surprisingly, business office, especially if there's costing and billing considerations, 
get them in early, make sure the tagging that you do meets structures they can deliver against. That was one we I didn't get right the first time. Um, maximize your current, current tools. I have to say that we've really extended service now. We've um, used Splunk really differently. Puppet. Puppet has been, we started using for AWS environment, but we've, we've used it for a lot of things. We have a lot of Linux machines to manage on campus, and we're doing that with it too. So extend what you have. And the last thing is, um, I had said service strategy was low. We didn't have many resources. You need a person for governance. We didn't have it. We didn't have the talent there. That's why we went with AWS. But you need someone who's dedicated to watching this as you build the environments. And so that's all I have for insights from Maryland.